0: So at at Northview, our our emails are our first initial and last name. So Luke and I are confused for one another quite frequently. I get emails intended for him. He gets emails intended for me all the time. So this is, if you mix the two of us up, neither of us would have been offended. Uh, We used to tell people we were cousins because we were very good friends. Thinking full well, we weren't. And then my wife did like a Mennonite family tree history thing. And Luke's dad is fifth cousins with my grandfather. So we actually... We're far more related than we thought we were. but uh, The passage that we're going to be in today is in Leviticus 17, so you can turn in your Bibles there. I believe it will also be up on the screen behind me. I'm going to read the first seven verses. That's where we'll be spending our time, and then we'll get into the sermon. So starting in verse 1 of Leviticus 17. Can you all hear me Okay. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So a passage like this at a first reading uh, feels maybe a number of different ways for a number of us. For some of us, it just feels weird. Uh, For others, it feels like it's obviously irrelevant. Uh, For some people, it might kind of start to border on a little bit offensive. And there's a, a lot of passages in the book of Leviticus that fall into a lot of those categories in our thinking. But the reason that I chose this passage when, when Glenn said I could have whatever passage I wanted to have was because I think this passage, as we get into it, speaks to a reality that, that you and that I feel on a daily basis. A, a question that we have in our ongoing day-to-day life. And it's, a, it's a question of whether we will live a life completely dedicated to God or not. The question of who we will serve with our money with our energy, with our abilities, is a question that you and I face in day-to-day life. This is a, a tension that I perhaps felt most acutely towards the end of my grade 12 year. I had decided that I was going to go and pursue engineering after I graduated. Standing here in front of you kind of gives you a bit of a clue as to the end of the story that I did not end up going that way. But I, I had decided over the course of grade 12 for a couple of reasons that I was going to pursue engineering. Some of them were pretty good reasons. I really liked math. I really liked physics. I loved problem solving and seeing how we can make things more efficient and more effective. That's a good reason to go in and pursue engineering. But there was another kind of second but stronger reason that was really the reason that I was excited to choose engineering. And that was because every time I told someone I was planning to study engineering in university, they would look at me in a certain light that I really enjoyed. Because people know that You have to work hard to be an engineer. When you are an engineer by profession, you make a good amount of money. So when you tell people that's what you want to study, you have a certain status in their eyes just by the nature of the field that you are stepping into. And so over the course of that grade 12 year, and especially my first summer after grade 12, I had to wrestle with this question. Am I choosing engineering out of a desire to serve God with my whole life, whatever I do, or am I serving other things? And that's why I'm choosing engineering. And so perhaps for you at the end of your high school years or early first couple of years out of high school, as you were choosing your vocational field, that was something that you wrestled with. But it's also a question that I think we wrestle with day to day. Who are we serving with the lives that we're living? And as we get into Leviticus 17, we're going to see that, that God's desire for his people regarding this question, is very clear. God wants to be the only God for his people. That's the, that's the main point I think this text is trying to teach us, that God wants to be the only God for his people. And so as we move through these seven verses, we're going to move through it in three sections. We're going to look first at, at how we need to remember the plot. We need to remember the story that we are within. Recognize the problem. So we need to remember, we need to recognize the problem at hand. And we need to be refocused. We need to see how God is going to refocus his people in this passage. So I've done three RE words. Remember, recognize, refocus. So I'll begin just by reading verses 1 and 2 as we look at remembering the plot. Because as we remember the story, it'll tell us why God ought to be our only God. So I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel, And say to them, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. The reason that I stop here so quickly is because typically these thus saith the Lord kind of sentences are are cues for us that what follows isn't going to be super easy to understand. It's not going to be super relevant at a first reading. Uh, This is true of the law in a way that is not true of any other book. Many of us love to read the narrative sections. Of scripture we love the the character development and the ironic twists and the the heartwarming conclusions that a lot of stories arrive at or, or we like to read the poetry because it resonates with us at, a, at an emotional level in a really significant way or or if you're a, a linear logical thinker like myself you love to read the the letters where arguments are developed and expanded upon and all the implications are presented but many of us would not say that our favorite place to read in our Bible is Leviticus. It is the place where your read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan goes to die. <laughs> and, I, and I think this is the case, because the tendency for all of us, myself included, when we are reading our Bibles devotionally, is to, to take the passage that we're in, and to, to lift it up, to extract it, and try and see what we can observe out of it, and then place it back down and move on. That's a a natural process that we go through, because we want to see what this text has to offer in particular. But the danger that we run into is not remembering that the the text that we've lifted up, we're actually extracting it from what the author is doing in a bigger sense. And in, in this passage in particular, in Leviticus 17, we have just come on the heels of what is effectively Israel's origin story. Where they have come from, how they have arrived At this place. And when I say the word origin story, you already understand how important it is to understand someone's origin story to get why they are the way they are in the present. Uh, How many of you know the name Bob Ross? So, Bob Ross was remarkable because he had a show where people wanted to watch paint dry. That is not a normal thing. But he, he had a show for many years where he just painted beautiful landscapes, and people loved him. And they loved him because he was, he was kind and warm and encouraging and peaceful. But what many people don't know about Bob Ross is that he spent 20 years serving as an officer in the American Air Force. And I, and I found a quote that described the kind of Air Force officer that he was while he served. And it, and it reads like this. During his 20 years as an Air Force officer, Bob Ross screamed at people with a force that would make a natural disaster nervous. He was a strict, angry man, and not just because it was his job. When it came to yelling at people, he went above and beyond. He, he earned the nickname, Bust em Up Bobby. Yes, the warm-hearted guy hiding under the silly afro was responsible for the tears of many army men. According to, to Bob Ross himself, I was the guy who made you scrub the toilet, the guy who made you make your bed, the guy who screamed at you if you were late to work. The job requires you to be a mean, tough person. So so while at one level people appreciate the Bob Ross they saw on TV, and rightfully so, patient, kind, warm, happy little trees. (laughs) But but when we understand his origin story, what what he was when he was younger, we appreciate what he became later in life all the more. Because now we realize there was a a remarkable transformation that happened somewhere Along the way, that meant he was no longer who he used to be. Origin stories matter, and they shed a lot of light and help us to develop a greater appreciation for why things are the way they are in the present. And so to understand this passage in Leviticus, we need to know the story that came before. And we don't have time to read, obviously, two and a half books of Old Testament narrative, so I'll summarize it very quickly. Uh, Basically, the story that comes immediately before this part of Leviticus is the story of the Exodus. God had chosen a family for himself to make a nation for himself, and he led them into Egypt when there was a famine in their own land, and they ended up enslaved in Egypt, Egypt being the biggest, most powerful empire of the day. And for 400 years, these people that, that God had promised to make a nation for himself languished in slavery. But God, through his remarkable intervention, through a series of plagues, took these people from Egypt, by his own power, defeating the most powerful empire of the day, brought them out to be his people, to be their God, so that they would be the ones who belong to him. And it's in that context that God gives these kinds of commands. The, The law is effectively the terms and conditions of the relationship Israel now enjoys with God after the Exodus. What God has done for them affects the way we understand what God says to them in the present and as they look back there there is a central lesson that they should have learned as they remembered their own origin story there is something they should always return to every time they retell that story to their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and it's the fact that god is the hero of that story so as they're thinking about the commands in the present what they need to remember is that their origin story teaches them that god is the hero and so they need to respond to him accordingly when these commands come. And you, you, you and I understand that the hero of the story matters. Uh, I'm going to tell a basketball illustration, but it's really not about basketball. You don't need to understand anything about it to get the illustration. So I just want to, sometimes when I start a sports illustration, people dip out right away. But don't worry. Uh, Kevin Durant won the MVP award in 2014. And, you know, athletes, when they win awards, they give speeches, typically. And he took the opportunity in his speech to look back at the story of how he became the MVP from his childhood on and reflected on the significant influence his mom had on his life as he grew. And here's how he described her. He said, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And speaking of his mom, you woke me up in the middle of the summertime. You made me run up hills. You made me do push-ups. You screamed encouragement at me from the sideline of my games at eight and nine years old. We weren't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the streets. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You're the real MVP. So when Kevin Durant looks back at his life and he remembers what his mom has done for him, it prompts him in the present to take this opportunity to sing her praises. He loves his mom, and his origin story reminds him of why he does. So when you think of your story, who is the MVP of your story? When you look back at your origin story, just like Israel was to look back at theirs, they were to come away with the unequivocal conclusion that God is the hero of their story. For those of us in the room who who have placed our faith in Christ, who, who walk after Jesus, what, what we should know as we read our Bible is that it teaches very clearly that God is the hero of our stories because we once walked in active rebellion against God. We, we chased after things that are contrary to what God calls us to be. But God restored us from, from a, a life of death to a life of eternal life, following after him what he intended for us to be. And we need to remember our origin story to understand how we live out that life in the present. That's true for Israel. They needed to remember their origin story. We need to remember ours. So that's why I wanted to start by saying we need to remember the plot. We need to remember where we are so we know how to act when we receive a a weird text in the present. So now that we've reminded ourselves of the story, we, we see how the passage points to the natural conclusion that God wants to be the only God for his people. We're going to continue on and see how this passage helps us recognize both Israel's problem and our problem. So I'm going to read verses 3 to 4, and then also verse 7, because it elaborates a little bit on verses 3 and 4. So continue reading with me. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Then, continuing in verse 7, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So so in these verses, we, we see the nature of the issue. And the nature of the issue is that there was a problem with the location where Israel was offering their sacrifices. And and that is a bit of a weird dynamic for us to wrap our heads around. Because especially during a season like COVID, what we hear people say over and over again is that church is not a place, it's a people. And, And at another level, you as a congregation appreciate this in a specific way because you do faithful church ministry out of a coffee shop. So you know that a church building is not necessary to faithfully live out your lives as people who follow God. But what you do understand already is that the location where an event happens affects the meaning of that event. And So I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life that I think will help you appreciate what I just said if it, in case it wasn't clear. Uh, when I was playing soccer one of my first few years after high school, I got kicked in the back of the leg, my knee buckled, and I tore my ACL. So I'm laying on the field in a ton of pain. In that moment, if I give my teammates a thumbs up, what do I mean by that thumbs up? I, I basically mean something to the effect of, don't worry, I'm not dead. I know I screamed like I had been shot, but I'm not dead. I'm just in tremendous pain. That's what that thumbs up means. So, so contrast that location with a different one. My, my wife and I are on our honeymoon. We're in London, England. Not Ontario, London, England. We're in front of Buckingham Palace, and she goes to take a photo of me, and I give the camera a thumbs up. What do I mean by that thumbs up? Well, hopefully I mean more than don't worry, I'm not dead. Although I certainly mean at least that. But, but what I likely mean by that thumbs up is I'm having a great time. I'm newly married. I'm traveling outside of the continent for the first time, hanging out with Elizabeth. This is great. Two thumbs up, same motion, same mechanics but because of the location where they happen, they mean two drastically different things. That is why the location of the Israelite offerings was such a big deal. The two locations that are contrasted here is whether an offering happens intentionally at the tent of meeting, or if it happens literally anywhere else. And and the reason that the tent of meeting was the significant and primary place was because God chose in those days to make his presence known in focused and localized and tangible ways. See, after after he had led Israel out of Egypt, he led them through the wilderness during the day as a pillar of cloud. And at night, when a cloud is hard to see, he led them as a pillar of fire. Those were specific, concrete, visible, tangible ways for Israel to know that God was with them. And then after he had led them for a time, he gave them instructions on how to build this tent of meeting, which he said is the place where he would dwell. And when they had completed it, he he filled this tent of meeting in the form of a fiery cloud, combining the two elements that he had previously used to show his presence with them. So, So for anyone who is an Israelite in any generations to come, they would know that if you want to be in the presence of the Lord, if you want to offer something to God, you do it at the tent of meeting. Because that is where God has shown you he dwells with you. So then if they were to offer sacrifices anywhere else, what they would be doing knowingly is saying, we're going to offer to someone other than God. We're going to take our offerings and give it to a a different thing that we want to worship. How would that have become part of their thinking? We, We have just spent time remembering their origin story for a few moments, but this would have been a story they told at length over and over again. They sing songs about the exodus. This was baked into their life as a people. How could they have forgotten that God wants to be their only God and has proved he ought to be their only God to this point? How does that happen? I think the answer lies in their origin story as well. Because for 400 years, they were in Egypt. And when you were in a nation, you see the religious life of that nation. They they would have seen the way that Egyptians worshipped, the offerings they made, the God's whom they made those offerings to. They would have seen those things. And right alongside those things, they would have seen the success of Egypt, the power of Egypt. They would have felt, via the whips on their back, the might of Egypt. And that power, success, might, is a pretty powerful apologetic for the way they worshipped. As Israel looked, they would have said, look what Egypt has. We want that. Look at how they got it, by worshiping these gods in these ways. So what Israel began to do was was what is called syncretism. Sync meaning together. They added in a little bit of the Egyptian worship life to their own. Not saying we're not following our God anymore, but we just want to cover our bases. They were just looking for an in-case option. And it's actually a situation that I think we should be sympathetic to. Because 400 years is a long time to suffer. As I'm sure many of you know, you've suffered, obviously all of you, for less than 400 years. But any length of time that you have suffered is difficult. And the temptation that you and I feel in the midst of suffering is to turn other places. To see what seems to be working for other people and to follow them. They began to want what Egypt had. And that, I think, is where this passage intersects each and every one of our lives. Because the desires of our hearts are being shaped and keyed upon in our world every single day. And one of the primary shapers and effectors of our hearts' desires is the media that we consume. Is the things that we watch, the stuff we love. The whole marketing world revolves around trying to change the desires of your heart so that your money goes where they want your money to go. There's a, a solution that they offer that they want you to believe in so that you spend money to get that thing. That's the basics of advertising and marketing. Uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a commercial that really affected my heart and so I wanted to use it as a bit of an illustration to show you how it is that that happens. Uh, it's basically a commercial where it's a bunch of quick cuts of everything going wrong. So a guy wakes up in the morning and he looks at his alarm clock and realizes it did not go off. So he's running late for work. So he spins to get off his bed and realizes a dog has chewed his slippers. So he's wearing one slipper. He walks to his closet to get on his office attire and realizes he hasn't done laundry for a couple of days. So he has to wear a shirt to work with a stain on it. He goes down to make his breakfast and after he's poured his cereal, he realizes his milk has gone off, so he has to eat dry cereal. He goes to get in his car to drive to work, and he's out of gas. He goes to to hop on his bike, and he's got a flat tire, so he rides a bike with a flat tire to work and the chain chews up the hem of his pants. He gets to the office, and the, the elevator's out, so he has to take the stairs. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And this whole time they're like ramping up the music, and they're making it just feel tense and stressed, and as someone who likes routine and rhythm and structure and control, my heart rate started to rise as I watched this commercial. But suddenly, everything goes peaceful in his office. There's soft piano music playing, somehow the birds are chirping inside. (laughs) And he is calm suddenly, he is peaceful. What has changed? Well, he stopped and went to the break room and made himself a cup of Cafe 3-in-1 instant coffee. <laughs> that's, that's the big selling point, right? You have stress in your life. You have days where everything goes wrong, and what you want is peace and serenity. And this instant coffee can apparently provide that for you. <laughs> but that's the basic formula that advertising follows, is it not? There's a problem that you have. Here's the solution we want you to want. So we'll show you why you need that solution and trust that you'll follow through on the purchase. Because you want this thing fixed. Your whole life follows after your desires. St- studies show that we are exposed to somewhere between four and 10,000 advertisements a day. And that ranges from everything from just a, a logo on a t-shirt to a, a longer 30-second minute long commercial but we are exposed to a ton of these messages every day. And what that amounts to in in our lives is a whole patchwork quilt of things we are told we should desire. This is a process that happens to us almost subconsciously. Every time you turn on a TV, every time you watch a streaming service, every time you watch a sporting event, you are being told what it is you should want and how you can get what you want. This is formation that's continuous and constant and oftentimes happens outside of our awareness of it even. We are being formed and shaped. And so the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is what are the messages that I am finding the most compelling? See, maybe you don't find that Nest Cafe commercial compelling because you're okay with a little bit of chaos in your life. That's fine. But it spoke to my heart because I like order and structure. So what are the things that you find most compelling? What are the messages that begin to affect the way that you live the most? What are the things that you are willing to give your time to get, that you are willing to use your abilities to get, that you are willing to use your finances to get? Because those are the things that are going to indicate to you what the messages are that you are most shaped by, the things that you are most affected by. And oftentimes, uh, the, the influences in our lives are not as benevolent as Nescafe, who I'm sure there are people at Nescafe who genuinely think their coffee is life-changing. But there are all kinds of people with all kinds of agendas trying to get you to live and chase after all kinds of things. And if that four to 10,000 ads a day number is even remotely true, that is a tidal wave of formation that you face, that I face, on a daily basis. And so the question that we are left with after we have recognized this problem that is so deeply pervasive in our world as it was for the Israelites is what hope do we have? What is the way forward? If you recognize that you are being shaped, the desires of your heart is being pulled away from God. What is the path forward to a life where God is your only God? Thankfully, in verses 5 and 6, we we see the solution that God gives Israel. And it's a process which refocuses his people on him. And we'll see from that process what what the processes are that God uses for you and I in the present. So I'll read verses 5 and 6 as we look at how God refocuses his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, That they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the way in which God is going to refocus his people, such that he is their only God, is a process with a number of different aspects, which at every point returns their attention to who God is and what he has done. So we're going to walk through this process and see how each element accomplishes that. The the first is that they were to bring their offerings to a person, to the priest. And in the, the rest of Leviticus and in Numbers and in Exodus, God has set out the priests to be his representatives to the people. So these people know if you're bringing something to the priest, you are bringing it to God. Uh, It's like if you have a message to leave for a, a friend, you might leave it with their receptionist if they're out of the office. Or if you have a gift to give to someone, you might leave it with their spouse or their parent if they're not home. You know the person you gave the gift or the message to isn't the final recipient, but you know that it will get to the recipient because you gave it to the right mediator, as it were. That's what the priest is like. You bring your offering to the priest because you know that is how God has set it up to receive your gifts, and your offerings. So that's the first aspect. You bring it to the priest. The second is is the location again. So very clearly addressed is the issue of location. You are to bring it to the tent of meeting, the place where God's presence in a fiery cloud descended. You bring it to the tent of meeting, to the place where you know God dwells. The the third element is that you are, the the priest would splash the blood on the altar. And again, returning, to Israel's origin story, blood played a significant role in their history as a people. See, see, a lot of the law talks about the significance of blood and all of those things, but the first place that blood plays a significant role in the people of Israel and in their ongoing remembrance of who God was and what he had done is in the the deliverance from Exodus. Because the 10th plague that God used to deliver his people from Egypt was going to be the death of every firstborn in the land as a consequence for what the Egyptians had done. But the way in which the Israelites were marked as belonging to God's people, were marked as being ones who would be spared from that final plague, is by painting their door frames with the blood of a lamb that they had slaughtered. So so blood would forever hold a very significant place in the life of Israel because of their origin story. So as this blood is splashed on the altar, they are reminded of the process by which they were saved. They were reminded of their origin story again. And then the, the, the final aspect of the story is the fat was burned. And it says it was a pleasing aroma to God. This fat is where all the, all the flavor is in meat. Uh, I don't If you're a vegetarian and don't think that meat smells good, uh, imagine you're an ancient Israelite who loves the smell of burning fat. Because as they would have seen the smoke rising, it would have been a reminder that these are offerings they've given horizontally for the priest to administer. But but the smoke reminds them that these offerings actually do go up to God. And the good smell that they would have smelled would have reminded them that God is pleased with their worship. Not because it's perfect, but because it's obedient. He is their God. They are his people. Every part of this process was designed to refocus Israel to remind them of how they had got where they were and how they ought to live ongoing in the present. God wanted to be their only God. And this prosex functioned a bit like how uh, a sculptor moves from an unhewn block of rough stone to a beautiful final masterpiece. I spent a very small amount of time in Rome, and there is a remarkable difference between a big rough block of, and a beautiful marble sculpture. And the way that you get from one to the other is that the sculptor has in mind the final image, and they use a hammer and a chisel to get rid of everything from that rock that does not factor in to the desire they have for the finished product. They chip it away, they remove it, because it's not going to be good for the sculpture at the end. This is what this process does for the Israelites. It removes any competing ideas that they should be offering to any, any goat demons any Egyptian gods, because it reminds them of what God has already done for them, who he has proven to be, even in the most dire of circumstances, this God came through. So maybe the question that you're now left with is, okay, that's great. They had sacrifices that they offered. But Levi, you know as well as I do that the Bible teaches that we don't make sacrifices any longer because Jesus was the final sacrifice for all time. A sacrifice effective to cover all past sins, all future sins. His sacrifice was sufficient. So how then does God refocus us now if we don't offer sacrifices? And this process is not helpful for us. And I am very glad that you asked. Because I would argue that everything about the normal life of the church, everything about the normal Christian life, is designed to serve this purpose. To refocus us on who God is, and what he has done, and teach us why he is the only God for us. It's it's why we do baptism. Romans 6, 3 and 4 teaches us that that baptism is a sign of our belonging to Jesus, And, and it reads, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In in our baptism, what we are remembering is like Israel in Egypt, we were enslaved to sin. That we walked in ways contrary to God. We lived in active rebellion to God. But in our baptism, we realize that we have put that to death by God's work in our hearts. We no longer are enslaved to sin, but have been raised to a new life of following after Jesus because of what he has done for us. It's why when you become a Christian, you get baptized. It's why we do communion. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Communion reminds us of what it took for us to be made right with God. The death of Jesus in our place, his broken body, his poured out blood. God paid a penalty so that he could be your God. A penalty you deserved, a penalty that I deserved, God paid, out of love. It's it's why we teach from the Bible. It's why Glenn asks me to come with a a Bible passage to preach on. Because church isn't about TED Talks and making you feel better. It's about unveiling in God's revealed word who God is and what he has done. It's why Christians are people who, who read their Bible. Because they want to know their origin story. We, we want to know what it is that God has done that has led to us being the way that we are. It's why we study the Bible. It, it's why when we worship, we are forever concerned about making sure that God is recognized as glorious. It's why, why the songs we sing aren't about how great we are, but they are intentionally chosen to talk about how great God is and who we are in light of that and how we follow after this great and glorious God. It's why we pray, because when we recognize who God is and what he has done and who we are and what we are unable to do, prayer is the best thing that we can do for anyone in any situation, because we recognize it is the means by which God chooses to act out his will for our lives and for the world. It's why the normal things of the Christian life are the normal things of the Christian life. So what do, what do these processes sculpt out of our lives? What is it that they chip away at in our thinking? I, I think they, they chip away at any competing desire that we have for what our life should be all about. Any other idea about why we are here, what we should want most, be, be it the, the message that what you need is to just feel good about yourself. Be it that the message is that your whole life should be about doing what you feel you ought to do most strongly. Whatever messaging that we have believed, all of these things chip away at it. Because it reminds us of what we need most. A relationship with this God who through Christ reconciles us to himself. That is what we need most. That is what we should want most. So as you look at your life, as you think about these various things that are normal parts of the Christian life, what do they look like for you on a day-to-day basis, on a weekly basis? Does your life look like a life that is being shaped by God more or by the world more? Have you been baptized? If you're a Christian, you've professed faith in Christ, have you been baptized? Have you taken that step of showing externally through the sign of being lowered and raised from the water? that you have died to your life of sin and have been raised to a new life in Christ. Or, or if you were baptized weeks ago, months ago, years ago, decades ago, do you ever think about what your baptism meant? Do do you reflect on the fact that you said at that point that I have died to sin and I am raised to new life in Christ? Do you ever think about your life now in light of your baptism then? When you take communion, what what is the the primary posture that you're taking? Is it that this is a, a tradition that we do, it's a church thing, so we do it? Or is it with one eye, always on, what God has done for you? How through Christ, you were brought back into the relationship with God that you did not deserve, but that he wanted you to have. How do you approach communion? What does your Bible reading look like? And I realize that a lot of these things are more difficult at certain times in our lives than they are at others. But when you read the scriptures, are you pouring over them, hoping to know this God better? To know him more truly as he has chosen to reveal himself to us? Is that how you read your Bible? When you pray, do you pray asking God for for lots of things? Which is great, and it's not bad, and we are even commanded to do it. But, but do you pray with the mindset of, this is the God who has already given me everything. And he has given me what I most need, himself. And so everything I ask for, I, I ask in light of that reality, that he is my God, that I am his person, and that I can trust that, that even if my prayers aren't answered as they hope they will be, that he will do what is best in any given situation. These are not things that make you a Christian, but they are essential parts of living a life where God is your only God and where you grow deeper and deeper in your commitment to that fact. We live in a world where there is a constant battle for the desires of our hearts. You and I are being shaped continuously and constantly by things who want us to get to serve them. But we have a God who has already saved us. And that God wants to be your only God. Who then will you serve with your whole life?